Hello and welcome back to Broken Oars Podcast and welcome back to episode 4 of Broken Oars University Summer Shorts. See what we did there? Summer Shorts. It's summer and we're all wearing shorts. We've been talking about poets and poetry, which to a rower is like listening to a single sculler telling you why single sculling is the zenith of the art and that everyone else, especially sweep rowers, are all knuckle-dragging buffoons by comparison. I've given the reason that I'm doing this as I want to start trying to use my brain again after COVID and long COVID completely and utterly banjaxed it. I don't think it's been as bad as watching paint dry. It might have been close on one or two occasions, but I think on a summer evening with a glass of wine and something nice, with the birds singing in the wisteria and the garden looking lovely, I think a little bit of chat about Thomas Hardy being a shagbag, or about A.E. Houseman inventing England as we know it and as we perceive it to be in our cultural narratives, all because he couldn't get with the undergraduate that he wanted to get with, the male undergraduate that he wanted to get with. We can thank the Victorians, of course, for a lot of things. For one thing, they invented the modern world as we know it. They invented our ideas of nation. They invented ideas of social progressivism in the improvement of the individual. Uh, they invented the idea of social infrastructure. They even invented Jacob Rees-Mogg. But the one thing that they really, really held on to as their own, far more than any other imperial power, was this weird thing where all of the sexual tension that they couldn't release came out in other dynamic, interesting, and frankly weird ways. Which is possibly why, in our last episode, I pivoted. I pivoted like an Irish dancer seeing Michael Flaherty coming. And I did so to flag up one of Tyneside's many contributions to the modern world. These are legion. I went through them in the last episode. But in this particular instance, I talked about how a young Geordie essentially invented the idea of the guitar hero and is basically responsible for every bad blues lick that we've ever heard played by a pub band when we've just wanted to enjoy a Saturday night out. Let alone all of the shenanigans by people like Jimmy Page with violin bows, Jimi Hendrix with whatever he could literally put his teeth into, and everyone else who's ever gone widdly 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 wee on a guitar, including myself. I pivoted because I've been thinking quite a lot as a musician about what role the guitar actually has as a, as a cultural instrument. Is it something that can create new, fresh and original sounding music that speaks to the contemporary moment? Or has it become a heritage instrument whose best days were in the 50s and 60s and whose players now tend to be unfailingly male, pale and stale, recycling blues licks that Eric Clapton stole from Buddy Guy in the first place? It's a difficult one, and it's one that I haven't fully answered yet, but I thought it was worth having a chat about. So, I'm going to go back to the Victorian period, and that is not because that's the only period that I know about. Don't worry, other poets will be coming along soon, other periods. But I think that the Victorian period is a salutary period, because the issues that still plague and bedevil contemporary Britain, Britain in the third decade of the 21st century, are ones which were apparent in the Victorian period. They are, you might say, the unresolved tensions of our island nation, tensions that probably will never be resolved because Britain fundamentally has not really changed all that much in the last 200 years. And if you think that that is a bold and insupportable claim, then you probably need to read more history. Because yet again, we have a group of elites at the top 
who show us a flag and say, rah, 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 we're all in this together when we are being a well-behaved populace. And as soon as we stop being a well-behaved populace, they go, terrible, how dare you? You are not worshipping the flag and doing what we say. You are unruly. You are an affront to the millions of hard-working Britons who believe in this flag and this country and this glorious... It's the world's biggest flim-flam game. But there you go. Anyway, today we're going to talk about Dickens. Dickens, I hear you say? What the Dickens? He wasn't a poet, was he? Did he ever write poetry? I'm sure he wrote novels. I've never read any of them, but I have used them to beat a whale to death with. Because he wrote novels in the great British tradition. Novels the size of houses. Novels that detailed the lives of their characters in such detail that you actually had to spend the rest of your life reading it just to get to the point where they get married in their mid-twenties, let alone what happened in the 30 or 40 years after that. No, I'm choosing Dickens because I think he's very interesting. And the tensions and ideas in his work are tensions and ideas that we still haven't resolved in the 21st century. So, let's have a look at that. So let's go back in time. Step back in time with me, if you will. Step back in time to a time where we still put children up chimneys, which is the best place for them. Step back to a time where you could still be hanged for stealing a pocket handkerchief or a loaf of bread because you were starving. Let's step back to a time when the gap between the rich and the poor was about as wide as it is now. Let's step back to a time when we had an undemocratically natured government, very much like we have now. Let's step back to around about the time of the Great Reform Bill and look at the undemocratic nature of it. Now, the early decades of the 19th century, there was a gap between the rich and the poor, between the haves and the have-nots. And when I say haves and have-nots, I'm not saying that because you own your own house and you drive a Range Rover or whatever, you are a have, you're not. Compared to the real haves, you are still pretty plebeian. You are still pretty much working class and beneath their notice. As much as we deplore the gap between the rich and the poor now, or we acknowledge that there's a serious gap between the rich and the poor now, back then it was a Britain of workhouses, of coal mines worked by children, of poverty and starvation. They didn't have food banks then. That wonderful invention, that thing that Jacob Rees-Mogg said that we should be so, so proud of having. We should be proud of having food banks. We should be proud that our starving teachers and nurses and our starving workers and our starving people who are maybe unable to work have to go to food banks, otherwise they'll starve to death. What a great representation of our British noble spirit. Anyway, in this period of history, a literate and imaginative voice came up. It was not from a privileged background. Anyone who studies culture will realise that a lot of the great leaps forward in culture tend to happen from people who don't come from privileged backgrounds. Because if you come from a privileged background, you tend to recycle the status quo. That's why you have a privileged background. If you look at the 10 greatest landowners in Britain, you can trace a direct line back to the 10 greatest landowners in Britain at the time of William the Conqueror. That's because things are recycled. Ownership and property is recycled. Wealth is recycled. You don't upset the status quo because it might upset that recycling process. For a fresh take on things, for an unjaundiced eye, for an imaginative engagement with what's happening, 
you need someone who's not from that background, but who can recognise what's happening. So, you have Charles Dickens. Charles Dickens is the son of a government clerk imprisoned in the Marshalsea prison for debt. He had only a rudimentary education, as we all know the famous story of Charles in the blacking factory, and he had next to no money when, as a very young man, he began to report on parliamentary debates for the monthly magazine. This is all fairly common knowledge. This is the sort of stuff that we learn about Victorian novelists at Key Stage 2. What I want to talk about is the Pickwick Papers and how that imaginatively engages with the idea of England or the notion of England. Now, the Pickwick Papers. If you've read it, well done you. I think I waded through it a while ago, back when I was young and I had the vigour and the energy to plough through several thousand pages of picaresque adventure. The Pickwick Papers, few famous novels and few novels that launch a career as spectacularly as this one did, have such humble origins. So, back in those days, what tended to sell a novel, as much as the words and the story and the plot and the characters, were the drawings by the draftsman, and in this case a comic draftsman by the name of Robert Seymour had recently made a success of his humorous sketches, and this book had mocked the pretensions of tradesmen who attempt to rise in the world. This is the period of the great rising of the working class into the middle class, the middle class into the upper middle class, and if you were very lucky and you invented pottery like Josiah Wedgwood, or you invented beer like one of the great brewing companies, after a couple of generations you had so much money that you were no longer working class or middle class, but you'd actually become part of the new aristocracy. And this is the period as well where all of those idiotic declensions and distinctions about what makes someone working class and what makes someone middle class start to emerge where the idea that you can have lower middle class and middle middle class and you can have upper middle class and you can have tradesmen who are, are working class but they're a step above working class who are labourers it's really very very simple it's not about whether you put your milk in your tea first it's not about whether you pick up the sugar with sugar tongs it's not about whether you drop your H's or not if you have to work for a living to pay your mortgage and bills and you get paid every month, you are working class. It does not matter if you work in one of the elite professions, you are a doctor, a lawyer, a financier, an engineer. If you work for a living, you are working class. Let's get rid of this ridiculous idea that somehow, because you know what pasta is, and maybe you make your own, you're middle class really. Okay, now we've cleared that up, moving on. So Robert Seymour had been successful with humorous sketches, which mocked the pretensions of tradesmen attempting to rise in the world. Now, Seymour was, by all accounts, an unhappy man. Um, he had a depressive temperament. He was of illegitimate birth. That is neither here nor there, really. A child coming into the world is an occasion for joy, regardless of how the child got there. The circumstances of a child's birth are never the child's fault and should not be held against it in any way, shape or form. It isn't even an issue 
back in the Victorian period. For all of their cant, for all of their religion, for all of their ideas about paternalism and patriarchy, the Victorians had an extraordinarily high percentage of illegitimate births within the annual birth rate. However, there would have been a social stigma attached to that at, the, at that time because of all of those things. So after the success of the sketches, he went to a publisher. He went to Chapman and Hall and he offered them a series of drawings depicting what he called the Nimrod Club, which is Cockney sportsmen having absurd adventures. Now, Charles Dickens by this time had begun to attract notice with his sketches by Boz, which are journalistic observations of London life. Hall, of the publishers Chapman and Hall, went to Dickens and asked if he could supply some supplementary material uh, for the adventures of the Nimrod Club, and at the age of 24, Charles Dickens obliged. Why wouldn't he? He was a young jobbing writer, he needed the money, and he went for it. Uh now, between the first and second episode of the book being published, Seymour killed himself. He went into his garden on Liverpool Road in Islington, and he shot himself. Now, this has sometimes been framed as his response to Dickens receiving the praise for what had originally been his creation, the idea that he resented Dickens' burgeoning success when the idea of the Nimrod Club had actually been his idea. The reality is that the first number, the first episode, the first edition, the first chapters had very little notice attached to them and had only sold 400 copies. Seymour's suicide is more likely to be prompted by the same issues that tend to prompt our current epidemic of suicides in the UK, particularly um, among men between the ages of 25 and 50. Mental illness, isolation, depression, and all of those things occurring without any help or any intervention. So Seymour's suicide was not prompted by Dickens' success or by the book's success because at that point it wasn't a success. One of the illustrators who actually went on to apply for the job um, of the illustrator of uh, the Nimrod Club of the Pickwick Papers was William Makepeace Thackeray but the job was instead given to R.W. Bus and thereafter the writer and the draftsman worked together to create the Pickwick Papers. Now this story, published between 1836 and 1837 in serial parts, was what we would call a picaresque, a rambling picaresque. What does that mean? It means that there is no real plot. It is just a, it is just a series of episodes and adventures. It's an episodic novel. It began to be successful because it began to find an audience among the growing the swelling numbers of the lower middle class, from which Dickens himself actually came, because it is celebrating and fantasizing about the new holiday freedoms, the new freedoms that people have to go off and go up country or go up river or go shooting or go fishing or go off with their friends. And in this sense, it's utterly modern. Its success is due to the fact that it is representing and catching a moment and a world that its audience recognises because it's their world. 
but on the other hand it's not modern at all it's backward looking and completely nostalgic because it's a series of snapshots of an England and of ways of life in England and of pursuits in England which industry and the railways are on the verge of changing forever. What Pickwick did which is so interesting is that it revealed for the first time the existence of a new public. So before Pickwick was published there was a division in the reading public. So newspapers cost about seven pence. A three volume novel would cost you one pound, eleven shillings and sixpence. Now, now, only the middle, upper middle and upper class bought what we would now call the broadsheets or the hardback novel. This in a country that was numbering seven to ten million at the time represents a readership of about 50,000 individuals. Beneath this class of about 50,000 readers there were those who read popular fiction. This was sold not in book form but in cheap periodicals, in loose paperbacks that were sold by travelling salesmen who went from door to door or who sold them in street markets. Ballad sheets, satires, um, broadside ballads, popular romances would all be sold in this way by vendors. There was a huge market there. Outside the class who read literature and who read quality news, there was a vast untapped market. The vendors were not unlike Silas Wegg, uh, one of Dickens's creations in Our Mutual Friend. Now, some of Dickens' contemporaries, such as William Harrison Ainsworth, who was a very, very popular imitator of the works of Sir Walter Scott at the time, believed and told Dickens that he was making a grave mistake, a life-altering mistake, in writing fiction in this popular, populist, trashy form, in the loose-covered serial form, a form that was, by its very definition, for the lower classes. But within months, the sales of Pickwick had risen to the tens of thousands. After Pickwick, and after Dickens's initial success, a lot of the great novels of the period, by Thackeray, by Trollope, by George Eliot and others, would end up being published serially in one of the many periodicals of the day. Dickens had not just represented his audience in a way that they recognised and could identify with, but he'd actually tapped into an untapped market at the time and it made him very rich and very successful and very powerful. Pickwick Mania, which sounds a little bit like Beatlemania, I don't think there's been anything comparable in my lifetime to the idea of Beatlemania. My mum remembers it in the 60s. Um, we had Britpop, which was a little bit like um, trying to recreate the Big Bang of the 60s using corner shop fireworks. I can't remember a craze really ever sweeping Britain that's comparable to the idea of Beatlemania and that's the only analogy that I have for the idea of Pickwick mania because it did actually grab right hold of Britain. First in Britain, then abroad. It, for some reason Pickwick was incredibly popular in Russia. So Pickwick chintzes began to appear in drapers shops. Breech makers were asked to cut their products to imitate the garments of Mr. Pickwick's 
Sancho Panja, his cockney servant, Sam Weller. Mr Tutman, Mr Snodglass and Mr Winkle, the esteemed members of the Pickwick Club, were all turned into Toby jokes, so you could take a drink out of your favourite Pickwick character. There were pastries invented, called Pickwicks, and there were sugar sweets made in the shape of the fat boy. Now, this is commonplace now. The Little Mermaid has just been released. Why, I have no idea. There was nothing wrong with the original animation. Um, but there will be a raft of characters and toys and cuddly toys and t-shirts and drawing books and sticker books and all of the things that in my lifetime were invented with Star Wars. Back when Star Wars came out, it came accompanied with a raft of toys and characters and things that you could buy to to inhabit the imaginative universe of the of the movie. This is a marketing thing now that um, successful publishers will use to cash in on the popularity of a character in a film or a book. We've had the recent vogue for Peaky Blinders haircuts and wearing Peaky Blinders style 1920s clothing. People don't seem to realise that men in the 1920s and 30s had their hair cut like that, what some hairdressers call half a haircut, where it's shaved at the sides, so that they could actually see the nits crawling around and catch them. Because it was a haircut that was done for medical and sanitary reasons, not because it looks inutterably cool. The Pickwick mania that happened then was largely spontaneous and the market tapped by Chapman and Hall, a new market, a new class of people altogether really, defined itself in response to how they felt about Pickwick and how they felt about Dickens. If we were going to get into cultural historical contexts here, the political student of the Pickwick papers would absorb much of the spirit of this newly emerging class, what would be called by Marx who got so much right in his observation and so much wrong in his inference, the petty bourgeoisie, who were successfully and successively in this period the sort who would support free trade and cheer when the Corn Laws were abolished because such measures would bring in eras of universal peace, that's how they were sold, yet they would also cheer unabashedly and unashamedly eight years later when Britain would go in to fight an entirely avoidable war against Russia in the Crimea. Like the electors at Muggleton in the Pickwick Papers, they would have represented at diverse times no fewer than 1,420 petitions against the continuance of Negro slavery abroad and an equal number against any interference with the factory system at home. We mentioned at the start that there is in Britain a national characteristic of irreconcilable tensions and contradictions. Equally, there are those who cheered Lord Palmerston for the bombardment of the Brazilian slave ports and who asserted their belief in freeing African slaves, who had absolute bloodthirsty and vengeful and revengeful views on how the Indian mutiny, as it was then called, should be put down in 1857. They would be pleased with the extension of the franchise to include the £10 householders, because this class would support liberal measures for education in 1870, but it was them who also kept in power the oligarchy, chiefly aristocratic, that defined the Victorian period, that controlled the parliamentary system, and therefore controlled the country. Insofar as they were pro-reform bill, both of the 1832 and 1867 variety, 
you could say that they are progressive, and that is a good thing, but they were always anti-socialist. And again, although they might have been anti the early 19th century Toryism of someone like Lord Liverpool, they loved Disraeli, and they voted Salisbury back into office again and again and again. So again, irre irreconcilable contradictions, irreconcilable tensions. Part of the difficulty that we have, and it's a difficulty that we still have in this country, is not just looking back as a 21st century reader of Victorian history and Victorian life and Victorian society, is how we draw the political map, how we see the world in the imaginative terms that help to form their political vision. Now, in terms of the late 20th and early 21st century, free enterprise and a belief in the market are right-wing beliefs. They are conservative party beliefs. They are Tory party beliefs. They are beliefs that have seen the dismantling of our national infrastructure, which was paid for often by the lives of our grandparents and our great-grandparents, for profit. And in dismantling it, we've seen the level of our public services decline. By contrast, we have started to see or believe that the desire to check this voracious energy, this vampiric energy, these manifestations of pure unfettered capitalism as left wing. But if we jump back to the period when Dickens is writing, when in Little Dorrit, for example, Dickens satirizes government bureaucracy in the circumlocution office, it was Tory red tape which he was mocking. All tight barnacle wound folds and folds of white cravat around his neck as he wound folds and folds of tape and paper around the neck of the country. This is the complaint that capitalists make of state socialists in the closing decades of the 20th century. But in the middle to early years of the 19th century, a radical liberal, which is what Dickens was, when he made that complaint, he was making against paternalistic, interfering Tories who were standing in the way of progression and change and social progression and social benefice. Pickwick is a free spirit if you read the book. He's a small-time merchant and he's been released from the slavery that you find oppressing so many in Dickens' work in the later books. The ideas of the high desk, the scratching pen, the factory gate, the suppression of true sentiment, as in Wemmick's office sentiments contrasted with the Walworth sentiments of his aged pea and home. Pickwick has achieved what all enterprising Victorians want, which we would all like, I think, financial independence. He and his companion set out in 1827, 10 years before the publication of the book, and the start of the Victorian era on a series of absurd comic adventures, beginning significantly enough where Dickens himself began as a child before the gates slammed shut upon his childhood and his father was ruined. They set out near Rochester. Bright and pleasant was the sky, balmy the air, and beautiful the appearance of every object around. As Mr. Pickwick leant over the balustrade of Rochester Bridge, contemplating nature and waiting for breakfast. On either side, the banks of the Medway, covered with cornfields and pastures, with here and there a windmill or a distant church, stretched away as far as the eye could see, 
presenting a rich and varied landscape rendered more beautiful by the changing shadows which passed swiftly across it as the thin and half-formed clouds skimmed away in the light of the morning sun. Even as the first readers of Pickwick read that, they were indulging in the British disease of nostalgia because the first railway terminus at Euston was built in the year the book was published. The old era of the stagecoach, which persists in Dickens' novels all the way through to Edwin Drood, was vanishing. And there is an imaginative glory in some of the older ways. If you look at the names of some of the stagecoaches, Defiance, True Blue, Wonder, The Tantivy, The Star of Brunswick, Isis, Irresistible, Tally Ho, which appears in Tom Brown's school days, Rocket, Zephyr, Ariel, Emerald, Flower of Kent, Mazapur. These give way to steam engines, um, about which in later eras, schoolboy enthusiasts would be no less sentimental than people who loved the idea of the stagecoach. Dickens loved the idea of the stagecoach because as a reporter, he liked the energy and the vitality of dashing from somewhere that he was reporting on and getting his copy back to town. Even though it's about a world they recognize, it's the nostalgia of Pickwick that's a large part of its appeal. And it's one of the most remarkable features of the collective Victorian consciousness. It's something that I keep coming back to, whether I'm talking about Hardy and Houseman, or whether we're talking about Dickens now, or whether we're talking about the English or the British national character and the way that we create our cultural narratives. They were, the Victorians, in every sense, different from the generations that had gone before and they were glad to be different they reveled in it they reveled in their difference in their creation of the modern world but they also hankered after the past dickens when he'd made his money settled in a large house at gads hill he had some false bookbacks made for a door in his library simulating a row of bound leather volumes the titles are still visible today in a room which is a school office and under the heading, The Wisdom of Our Ancestors, he has 1. Ignorance, 2. Superstition, 3. The Block, 4. The Stake, 5. The Rack, 6. The Dirt, 7. Disease. Dickens had, along with a lot of his contemporaries, a desire to put the old world of injustice, ignorance and disease behind him. But he shared with them a sentimentality about the past, a sense that the industrialization and the progress that was being made was somehow wrecking the world. And this tension, this contradiction, this, this thing that was felt by all of the readers of Pickwick then, and which we are still wrestling with today in the 21st century, is one of the defining features of the 19th century. It defines someone like John Ruskin, who can be claimed, and justly claimed, as the father of English socialism, and also the bluest of the old Tories. One of the things that we struggle with as 21st century readers of Dickens is one of the things that is possibly one of his strongest qualities as an author. So it's simultaneously something that defines him and is one of his qualities, but is the hardest with which to come to terms. It is his idea of benevolence. How can one talk about this quality without firstly being smug and condescending from our perspective? And how can we read Dickens without pointing the finger at him and going, he's too saccharine, he's too sweet, he's rounding off the edges of his world to make it nice. 
1838, the Edinburgh Review, writing about Dickens, said, One of the qualities we most admire in him is his comprehensive spirit of humanity. The tendency of his writings is to make us practically benevolent, to excite our sympathy in behalf of the aggrieved and suffering in all classes, and especially in those who are most removed from the observation. And that's because the idea of paternalistic benevolence, which is tied to ideas of patriarchy and father knows best, and all of the things that we associate with the very, very worst of the Victorian period, and also often the British character, is not in itself always a bad thing. Yes, many of the benevolent characters in Dickens will strike us as being maudlin, clumsily drawn, manipulating our sympathies, manipulating our sentiments, pricking at our tear ducts. If you think of the brothers Cheerable or of Mr Brownlow or Pickwick himself, yes, they can be hard to swallow. And it has been said that their facile charity forbids censoriousness. They are too busy being happy to think. And the fact that a great aunt or an uncle or a benefactor will appear at the last minute and make everything all right is obviously not real. It tends not to happen in real life. Yet each time one reads a Christmas carol, it works somehow because it's tapping into a deeper idea that for all of their hypocrisies, and we all have them, for all of our contradictions, and we all have them, the vast majority of people who are often driven by self-interest, even when we think that we aren't, who are often driven by achieving their own ends, even when we think we're trying to help each other, it's driven by the idea that humanity fundamentally has goodness within it. If you read A Christmas Carol, the ethics of Scrooge are the ethics of Adam Smith and Bentham. They are the ethics of the mill owners and the factory owners and the factory builders and the foremen. They created the wealth of Victorian England, which we ended up riding through most of the 20th century on. And they are being held in check by a tremendously simplified form of Christian charity, of benevolence, of the helping hand, of the idea of the helping hand. And Dickens promoted this idea. He was as hard as they come. He held his publishers over a barrel for more money. He had a firm sense of his own dignity. He had people arrested if they shouted at him in the street. He ruled his household with an iron hand. He was massively hypocritical. It appears that there was at least one mistress kept in a house in Slough. And yet he was still motivated by this idea and he still held this idea because all human beings are little clouds of contradictions. That's fine. But he promoted the idea of, bele of benevolence in his person, his work at Great Ormond Street uh, Children's Hospital and in his writings to the point where we have to take him as a benign force and a positive force within the Victorian period that is the making of modern contemporary 21st century Britain. He is both the cause and a symptom of a benevolence which is palpable. A great lord at the time was said to say, why bother the poor, leave them alone? And he was quoting Sir Walter Scott and he was saying it to Queen Victoria when she asked him about the desirability of extending education to the poor. You will be able to tell which lord I'm referring to because you obviously know, of course, 
which Lord Queen Victoria was talking to at the early part of her reign, because they were the lords that were in government. This was the person who had personally approved the treatment of the Tolpuddle Martyrs, which, when in spring 1834, poverty-stricken labourers in Dorset had the sheer front to form themselves into a friendly society and to say, we find it hard to live on nine shillings a week. Think of all of those hard-working Britons that those terrible nurses and those terrible teachers and those terrible train workers are making their lives a misery with their incessant demands to the government. And yet we all know that those hard-working Britons are also hard-working teachers and hard-working nurses and hard-working train staff. There's a reason why they are saying we're finding it hard. We need more help. The job of government is to produce a content, well-fed and happy population, not to pit us against each other. Anyway, moving on. This particular person made sure that the, the Tolpuddle Martyrs, their heads were shorn, their hands, legs were chained and manacled, and they were dragged to Dorchester Assizes and they were contemned under the Esoteric Secret Oaths Acts for forming a forbidden society. They'd done nothing of the sort. They were tried as spies and treasonous spies as that, simply for saying that they were starving. There was talk of trying them for sedition, which was punishable by death. In the event, they were sentenced to seven years' transportation. When Queen Victoria asked Lord Melbourne if he could recommend the newly published Dickens novel Oliver Twist, which is serialised in 1837 to 1838, because it was attracting a lot of attention and it was famous and Dickens was famous, he said, I do not want you to read it. It's all among workhouses and coffin makers and pickpockets. I don't like these things. I wish to avoid them. I don't like them in reality, and therefore... I don't wish to see them represented. This unwillingness, this airiness, this dismissiveness to confront the more displeasing aspects of contemporary existence might have been regarded as just sheer head-in-the-sand ostracism, self-preservation, self-protection if Lord Melbourne's remark had been made by any other rich nobleman of the period. These are people who removed entire villages, who removed homesteads and who turned people out of their land simply because they wanted uninterrupted views when they went to their country estates. However, coming from the lips of the Prime Minister who brought in the new Poor Laws of 1834 and who was in direct fact responsible for the existence of the workhouses in such dimensions and numbers, the words and the person can only be seen as having a chilling, absolute amorality, a disdain for the society that he is part of. Now, you might be thinking, God, Lord Melbourne, what an absolute and utter twat hammer. And you'd be absolutely right. And you might be thinking, thank God we don't have people like him around today. And you'd be absolutely wrong, because we do have people around who are like him today and the rhetoric that he used then the idea that somehow poor people bring it on themselves that somehow they deserve to be poor that somehow they should just try harder and they would find that everything would be okay is a rhetoric that has been used from his time all the way through into the present day we have more people in poverty today than we have ever had we have more children below the poverty line 
than we have ever had. We have lower life expectancies than we have had for decades. We have a national crisis, a cost of living crisis. We have people who have full-time jobs, one and two full-time jobs, having to use food banks, having to use charities, being turned out of their homes because they cannot afford to pay their rent or their mortgage, even though they are working jobs that are technically supposed to be able to support them. And the message is, well, they should work harder. This is all fine. This is okay. This is not our fault. This is their fault. They deserve it. They bring it on themselves. It hasn't changed, is the point that I'm making. It does not. Britain has not fundamentally changed. When the narrative from the top down is that ordinary, everyday Britons need to just work harder, we already work more hours than any of our neighbours in Western Europe. We already work longer hours than any of our neighbours in Western Europe. We have a cost of living crisis that is endemic. We have galloping inflation in house prices. We have a gap between real wages earned and the cost of living that we endure. And those things have not actually changed much since the Victorian period. Listening to this, who row and who occupy positions in what might be called the middle class, if such a thing actually existed anymore, would think that I'm being somehow dangerously seditious or that I am offering some kind of received treason against Britain. I'm not. I actually love Britain. I love this country. I love England. I love Scotland. I love Ireland and I love Wales. I like the people in it. I like the people that I have met. I think that there are people in this island who are kind and generous and who are all of the things that we purport to be in our national narrative. I think that we are a country of extraordinary individuals capable of extraordinary things and I do not think it is treasonous or anti-patriotic or somehow anti-British to say that I think that we deserve better. Now the years 1837 to 44 brought the worst economic depression that had ever afflicted the British people. It is estimated, and we are talking about here the years before the Irish famine, so these numbers aren't included, that more than a million people starved from simple lack of employment. Many of the nation's businesses came to a halt. The workhouses whose existence Lord Melbourne found so distressing to contemplate could not actually house the influx of people who needed them. What Oliver Twist did was it inspired a shocked and indignant reaction from the public. The poor law amendments that were initiated by Melbourne's administration were not popular with the educated middle class. The 50,000 who Dickens had been urged to write for, but because he was writing for the wider audience, the hundreds of thousands below that educated class, because he was tapping into a bigger audience, and because he inspired and excited their idealism with his ideas of benevolence and the helping hand, it helped to bring about change. Now, the Victorians, like Dickens, like ourselves, were far from perfect. We say that we stopped the slave trade, and we did, but it took us decades to do anything about the slaves that were still being held in captivity. And despite doing that, we did literally nothing to better the lives of urban wage slaves in factories and mills. We did literally nothing, and I say we because the Victorians, as we are constantly reminded in our cultural narratives, Britain is a ship and we are sailing through history and there is a line of continuity that connects us all. The genocidal neglect of the people in Ireland during the famine, the 
absolute brutality in India and Africa, these cannot be overlooked, they cannot be glossed over. If you read history, if you want to talk about national character, you have to be prepared to look the bad in the eye as well as acknowledge the good. A lot of these abuses were not alleviated until history, as it rolled on, forced these abuses to be addressed. The empire being taken away from the British, not because we gave it up as we like to tell ourselves, but because two world wars meant that we couldn't afford to keep it. That's it. If we hadn't had those wars, we'd still be trying to hang on in those territories even now. But even in the midst of all of this going on, of all of these contradictions, of all of these tensions, there were a lot of people who were behaving with the idea of benevolence. They were behaving benevolently. This seems to occur at all times and in all places throughout the 19th century. The landlords in Ireland, for example, did not en masse starve and neglect their tenants. Not all mill owners were monsters. Sanitation and housing was terrible in many British cities and towns up to and including the mid-20th century. But improvements in general were made. A proper guilt was felt and an urge to try and do something about it. We can talk about how people became aware of the situations because of the growth of the railways, taking them into places they'd never been before. But we cannot be smug about these things because what is being discussed and what is being represented by Dickens and what we're talking about is human misery on an immeasurable scale. In workhouses, in factories, in slums, in colonies, in army camps, in ships, in Britain. And yet Dickens, because he is consistently inventive and consistently funny and often unpompous despite what you might think about sentences which go on for three pages and really murder the semicolon he is reminding us that there is an alternative way of being there is another Britain that is working against the darkness and the badness and the things that are wrong he has a belief that the harshness of life can be tempered by kindliness. He has a belief in the power of being good-hearted, that being good-hearted can eventually triumph over evil and bad. It's not a political program. It is a program of personality. His world, like the world of Victorian England, like our world now, is not some mass, as Karl Marx would see it, the mass. It's a teeming, moving screen of characters and individuals and professions and scenarios and ideas that is constantly moving before us. He is not realistic at all. We might want to read Hard Times and go, wow, what a searing indictment of the factory system in Yorkshire or Do the Boys Hall. What a searing indictment of the school system in the Victorian period. It's not realistic. He's, he's probably the least realistic of all writers. Um, more than most writers, he's living in his own world. We talked about the fact that he's still using the stagecoach in 1870 in Edwin Drood when stagecoaches had long since vanished from the stage. But in creating his own world and in the idea of benevolence and the belief in kindliness, he prevented an alternative to a lot of the misery and a lot of the suffering that he saw him around him. It, I'm not going to go as far as to say as the England of Victoria was the England of Charles Dickens. Of course it wasn't. 
but it's one of the ways that we can tap into what was happening. And as we look at a country that is divided, as it has never really been before, but which we now know it always really has been, and as we face the challenges of the 21st century, as we look at what needs to be done to repair our social infrastructure, our social contract with one another, the way that we connect with other human beings, the way that we talk to other people, whether it's the lady on the checkout as we buy our morning coffee, whether it's the person who comes to see us at work to deal with a particular issue, whether it's another boat on the water that cuts us up because yet again, tyne amateurs are on the wrong side of the river going round the bends near the car crusher, it would not do us any harm to treat each other with a little bit more kindness and a little bit more benevolence and offer each other the chance of understanding where the other person is coming from and what they are dealing with and trying to help them because then we may get the help that we need in return. And if we can do that on an individual level, one-to-one, -one, and we can connect as clubs, rowing clubs, communities, as people in the same place of work, as people with children at the same school, then maybe we can build those one-to-one -one networks into something more positive and maybe we can affect the kind of positive change that Dickens managed to affect by being just a little bit more kind, a little bit more curious, a little bit more engaged and a little bit more ready to believe the very, very best of people because they will often surprise you, even people who sit at stroke. Now, thank you for listening. I'm sure that at some point Loon is going to take the microphone off me because he's going, good God, all this poetry stuff. We need to talk about lactate thresholds. Come on, we're losing our audience. Our audience is great. You can take a little bit of Dickens occasionally, can't you? Possibly. Houseman? Maybe not so much. Anyway, more rowing coming soon, possibly with news on the trans debate. Bye for now. <laughs>